Thank you so much, Pastor Mike. And I want to say to all of you right up front, congratulations. Uh, because I heard Pastor Mike say that, you know, this church hears good morning, this church hears good evening, this church has never heard good afternoon. And so you are the first gathering maybe of this church to actually be here to hear good afternoon. And so I think that is fabulous. Uh, a little bit about myself. I do come uh, from, uh, I'm not a native Minnesotan. I moved here from Los Angeles, uh, where I pastored for about 15 years. Uh, and yes, uh, people ask me, why did I move here from LA? And my answer is always the same for the winters. Uh, I was tired of not having winter and I knew that Minnesota would make up for it. And Minnesota uh, very much has. I moved up here to work at North Central University, uh, first as a full-time faculty member in theology. Uh, over the last four years, I've been the dean of the College of Church Leadership, which oversees vocational ministry training. Uh, now, a little bit about my family, in case you're curious. I, we do have a family, I have a wife, I have a son, and just this summer we became foster parents. And so right now we have a foster child uh, that we will probably have through the rest of the summer, and then we will just see what God does with what we're doing uh, in the future. Uh, as dean, uh, I was asked a lot of questions about how the church should deal with the pandemic right when the pandemic started. Uh, I had an opportunity to be a part of pastors' conferences, uh, of course, by Zoom, because no one could meet uh, in person, uh, and then have been traveling at different churches just in my role as dean at North Central and for some other reasons. And, and this topic kept coming up of pandemics and how the church is recovering and always lead into polarization. Uh, hearing pastors basically talk about their struggles as to how whatever you do in the church, you're upsetting half the congregation and that it almost feels like you're put into an impossible spot if what you do is based on what the congregation wants because congregations don't typically agree with what they want. And trying to understand how do you navigate this? And so it was in the context of having all these conversations with pastors over uh, really the course of a year that when I was asked if I would present something at our equip conference for the Minnesota district, uh, come speak to our pastors, what do you wanna talk about? I just kind of casually said, what if I came and I talked about pandemics and polarization? And then they were like, that's it. That's what we want you to have uh, come and speak on. And so I kind of put something together to talk about that. Uh, of course, as Pastor Mike said, he heard me, has asked me to come and, and talk about it here. So I'm very happy to do that. Uh, I am going to be preaching tonight and tomorrow. It will not be this, though there will be a little connection, but I'm, I'm just going to preach uh, uh, tonight and tomorrow morning. What I'm going to do right now is kind of lecture. And here's how I would like to describe it. If you were a student in North Central, and by the way, you're not. If you want to be, I have this on the board that you can actually uh, uh, get a QR code. It'll take you. It's much easier than bringing brochures or a table. And you can just kind of get information from there for yourself or someone else. But if you were in one of my classes, typically what we would do is this. We would have a lecture per week that would be divided over how many days we meet that week. And we wouldn't just have me standing up talking for the full week. The lecture would be written for about the amount of time I'm going to go today. And then it would be broken up constantly with conversation, with exercises, with other things. And so basically over the course of a semester, we would have basically 15 lectures. Those 15 lectures would sometimes be divided into three or four questions. All those questions would come back to one question. And that one question is what the entire course is about. 
And that would be your experience in one of my classes at North Central. So here's what I'm kind of doing today. I'm taking what would probably take me a week and I'm putting it into one afternoon for you. Meaning we're not gonna do a lot of exercises. We're not gonna do a lot of, of small group discussion or the normal things I would put into a classroom. This is just me doing what I would normally do. But here's the plus side for you. There's not gonna be any quizzes afterwards. So there's not gonna be any homework. I'm not gonna give you any reading, though I will give you resources at the end of this in case you want to learn more. Uh, what I wanna talk about is I wanna talk about what I've entitled uh, Pandemics, Polarization, and the People of God. Uh, being Christian communities in a divided world. And it's not strange to highlight that we've seen increasing polarization in our country in the 21st century. And an example of this can be found by just looking at the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I, I don't have all the numbers up here since the time of Scalia, but I'm going to put this up here, and then I'm going to kind of explain it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the problem. Then we're going to go to the Apostle Paul and look at the model. And here's the question I'm going to ask. If we took the Apostle Paul from the first century and we dropped him in the 21st century in the United States, what do you think he would say to us about what we were facing? And we're going to look at what he does say about similar situations and how that could apply to us. And then we're going to look at how to be a non-polarized people in the church. So these are kind of the ways we're going to break this down. Now, I'm going to just throw this up here again you're not going to be quizzed over this, so you don't have to take notes. But I want to highlight something. You want to look at polarization, just a great example of how polarized we've become. I want to show how we vote for U.S. Supreme Court justices. When Scalia, who recently passed most conservative justice on the Supreme Court, when he was voted in as Supreme Court justice, it was unanimous. Every Republican, every Democrat voted for him. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was next up, became uh, justice, it was almost unanimous. She was the most pro-choice justice we had. Every Democrat voted for her. Every Republican voted her but three. When you go to Stephen Breyer, it was still almost unanimous. When you get to Chief Justice John Roberts, who again was conservative, pro-life, Catholic, again, it was all Republicans, half and half Democrats. Democrats were equally divided over whether to put a pro-life judge as the head of the U.S. Supreme Court. When you come to more recently, Neil Gorich, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Kintaji Brown-Jackson, it's almost a perfect split between Democrats and Republicans, meaning no Democrat is voting yes, no Republican is voting no, or vice versa, based on who the justice is. So it entirely comes down to one or two people in the entire U.S. Senate to determine who's on the U.S. Supreme Court. And you say, why? Why do we have this division now, but we didn't have that division back then? And you're like, well, abortion. No, no, abortion was still a thing. Abortion was still heavily debated. We still knew where the justices stood on abortion, but we didn't have the kind of polarization, which of course comes down to in part this, every single person running for office knows how they vote will determine whether they get reelected or not because of how polarized the country is. Uh, polarization is something that has taken on a new life in the 21st century, but it's not something that's new in the United States. Uh, in fact, this has been something that we have always been afraid of, and we've always been afraid of it for this reason. Polarization is a democracy killer. 
Polarization kills democracy. Kills democracy in part for this reason. When you become polarized, you're always fighting for 51% of the vote. You give up on the idea that you can be unified about something. You give up on the idea that the country could be together. You're now just trying to get that 1% that moves you one direction or the other. Look at the votes here for Supreme Court. And at that point in every single election, in every single vote, in every single decision, almost half the country feels like they're not being heard. And almost half the country is anxious because they almost lost. And it creates an incredible tension in our country that's the only thing that we share is the tension. This has been something that we've been afraid of from the beginning. I'll give you an example of this. James Madison, father of the U.S. Constitution, actually wrote about his fear of polarization because he knew that no matter how good the Constitution was, the more polarized the people become, the less effective the U.S. Constitution will be. And here's what James Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers about this. I'm going to put the whole quote over here, but it's, it may be small print. I'm going to read it. I think it's a powerful thing. Here's what he says. The latent causes of faction are thus sown in the nature of man. And we see them everywhere brought into different degrees of activity according to the different circumstances of civil society. A zeal for different opinions concerning religion, concerning government and many other points, as well as speculation as a practice, an attachment to different leaders, ambitiously contending for preeminence and power, or to persons of other descriptions whose fortunes have been interesting to the human passions, have in turn divided mankind into parties, inflamed them with mutual animosity, and rendered them much more deposed to vex and oppress each other than to cooperate for the common good. I just want to highlight that for a second. I put it in bold. When we are factionalized, when we are polarized, we're more likely to fight to see the other person lose than we are to fight so that both sides can win. We're more likely to vex and oppress each other than we are to work for the common good. And then he goes on here. So strong is this propensity of mankind to fall into mutual animosities that, no, that where no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. And then I had to put this in bold because I think it's a powerful thing. It is vain to say that enlightened statesmen will be able to adjust these clashing interests and render them subservient to the public good enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. It is ridiculous. I'm putting my own words. It's ridiculous to say it's okay if this is how we are because our leaders will always take us to the right place. Because the truth is, we won't always have those kinds of leaders in charge. This was the fear even in the drafting of the U.S. Constitution. We just have a tendency to polarize because it's human nature, or as I would put it this way, it's a reflection. And this is where I think the genius of our constitution is. Even though not all the people involved in this were Christian, they all kind of agreed with at least one doctrine of Christianity, and it was original sin. That this is what it is to be a human being who's fallen, and we've got to create a government that recognizes the fallenness of human people. 
That's why the Constitution has lasted so long, because our founders believed in original sin. Now, let's go to the present. A few years ago, 2018, so this is pre-COVID, there was a massive study done by More in Common called Hidden Tribes, a study of America's polarized landscape. And here's what they uncovered. In interview after interview after interview with thousands and thousands of Americans, they found that Americans in typical would answer questions so similarly into seven different groups that they put them into seven different what they called tribes and said there are seven hidden political tribes in our country that we don't always recognize. Here's the seven tribes that they uncovered. The first, the progressive activists, These are the people who are younger, highly engaged, secular, cosmopolitan, and they're angry. And in 2018, they said it was about 8% of the country. Then you have the traditional liberals. They're older, retired, open to compromise, rational, and cautious. They put them at about 11%. Then you have the passive liberals. They are unhappy, they're insecure, they're distrustful, and they're disillusioned. They put them at 15%. By the way, I'm just gonna make an aside here. Right now in the White House, we find a fight between these three groups that we don't always recognize that's actually fighting that in some sense has damaged the White House even without other parties being involved. I mean, a lot of times, liberals right now have a tendency to eat each other up. And there's three groups right here that are doing it. Then we have politically disengaged. By the way, the largest group in the country are the politically disengaged, 26%. They're young, low-income, distrustful, detached, patriotic, and conspiratorial. They're always willing to believe there's actually something else going on that's behind the scenes. And it represents one out of every four Americans. They're patriotic, and they're also sure something else is going on. Then you have the moderates, engaged, civic-minded, pessimistic, and almost uniformly Protestant. Probably mainline Protestant more than likely than anything. Then you have the traditional conservatives. They're religious, they're middle class, they're patriotic, and they're highly moralistic. And then finally, you have the devoted conservatives, who are typically white, retired, highly engaged, uncompromising, and patriotic. And here's what I think is interesting. Uh, We have uh, a few people here. Eli, Isaac, I want you guys to come up here. I'm gonna borrow the two of you real quick. I wanna get, let's get four other people who are willing to come up with me for a second. I'm gonna send you your seats very quickly. I got these two guys because they were just willing to jump up. But give me four other people. Let's get four others up here. I'm gonna save you two for last because you guys are the bravest. So I'm gonna line up here in a straight line. Now we have six people. I'm gonna make myself number seven. And here's what I wanna highlight. If we took all hidden tribes and we put them up in a line like this, and we said, how do these hidden tribes play out in the church? If I put myself over here as progressive activist, I'm secular, I'm not even a part of the church. And my attitude is typically this. I'm sitting on this end of the spectrum, because here's a spectrum. And I'm looking at everyone who's religious and I'm thinking religion is the problem. Because all of these people disagree with me. All of these people are by and large religious. By the way, it might surprise you, 70% of our country identifies as Christian. 
and all the polls, 70% of our country, you add the others who identify as some other religion, and it makes sense that this group is only 8%, though they sometimes think they're speaking for the majority. But I see everyone else is the problem. I'm not in church at all. I think church is the problem. Then you have this group right here. You have the traditional liberal. You have the passive liberal. You guys are probably going to a mainline church. And I'm sorry to tell you, but your church is dying. In fact, let's, let's do the Episcopal church as an example. The average age of someone who goes to an Episcopal church is 65. That's the average age of a member of an Episcopal church. What's gonna happen in 20 years? Episcopal churches are gonna be closing left and right because they don't have anyone to actually fill their pews. So I'm gonna have you guys sit down. Thank you so much. I hope the next 20 years work out for you. Okay, you right here, you are politically disengaged. You're a conspiracy theorist. You right here, you are a moderate. You might be in a mainline church. You might be in an evangelical church, but you've been really unhappy at the way things have been going the last few years. And what's happening to the two of you is you're leaving the evangelical church in droves. How many have heard of this new line, exvangelical? A lot of exvangelicals are coming from this group. I'm gonna have the two of you sit down. Now, we have two groups left. We have our traditional conservatives and we have our devoted conservatives. Mm -hmm. If these become the only two people left in our church, what are they gonna fight about? And here's what's happening. We actually find in some churches, evangelical churches, only two or three groups left out of hidden tribes. And this group, the devoted conservative, is looking at the traditional conservative and all they see is a liberal. Because what they're focused on is where they disagree. And sometimes out of purity, out of wanting to fight and defend the country, you are casting off someone who actually belongs in the same conservative camp as you, but you can't see it because from your side, they're the other side because everyone else is left. Thank you guys so much. Let's give Eli and Isaac a hand there. So you kind of see what's happening in our churches. So why? Why is this occurring? There's various reasons that have been given for polarization. I'm gonna give you a few. By the way, uh, I, I've looked at multiple sociological accounts of why our country's becoming polarized. What I put up here was one map of one sociologist who tried to capture what everyone else has been saying in one chart. I'm not gonna ask anyone to study this. I just wanna show you how complicated people have made it, right? I'm gonna simplify it as much as I can. I'm gonna give you six reasons. Six reasons why we have become more polarized in this country. And the first is simply this, cultural insecurity. As a country, we've become more culturally insecure. How many of you would say that either myself or someone else, I could say, feels like the country they live in isn't the country they were raised in? It feels like everything has changed all around me and this isn't where I was from. It doesn't feel like home anymore. There's a cultural insecurity. Part of that's due to economic instability. We can't imagine that the generation that's coming up are gonna have the same opportunities for success as their parents or their grandparents. Some of those opportunities are just going away. There's economic instability. Uh, there's rapid cultural change. In the last 10 years, things have been treated as normal that would have been regarded as ultimately fringe 10 years ago. The cultural change is happening so rapidly and you also have a loss of trust and unity that you just don't believe other people are for you. You don't believe you can trust other people. 
And let me highlight this. One of the things that are absolutely necessary if you're gonna have a common good, if people together are gonna fight for the common good, is they have to be able to trust the other person is as well. And if you can't believe the other person is for the common good, you yourself aren't gonna feel confident in fighting for their good. So we have cultural insecurity. We also have information flow. That's changed in the last 20, uh, uh, 10 years, 15 years. Part of it's just social media. Social media uncovered, and this is something multiple people have talked about, that if you want to drive traffic, you know what drives traffic on things like Facebook quicker than anything else? It's outrage. If you want to drive traffic, if you want to get people posting, if you want to get people commenting, what you have to do is make them outraged. And they've created algorithms on these various social media sites that are aimed at manifesting outrage on the part of the people who are viewing them. How many of you have ever read Facebook and you got mad? That's me, that means it's working, Right? That's what they're going for, and that increasingly people are now, by outrage, being driven into the same smaller and smaller camps of other people who are being outraged by the same things because the algorithms are driving you together. We also have with media. News media has increasingly become more like entertainment news. And what we mean by that is partially this. I love this line a number of years ago, CBS. I remember there was a time there was just three networks. Uh, this is, a, I'm going to date myself, uh, but CBS years and years ago had a big, big controversy over whether they could spend money to tell stories when they weren't making money as a news division. And they went before the president of CBS, who was a famous TV executive in history by the name of William Haley. And William Haley uttered this famous line that's become famous in TV journalism. And the line was this, he said to his news crew, don't worry about making money I have Jack Benny to make me money. If you don't know who Jack Benny is, then I've just dated myself. But don't worry about making money. I have Jack Benny to make me money. And the point was this. CBS has an entertainment division. That's the division that makes money. Your job is to simply get the story straight. We don't care about you making money. How many know that has completely changed? News shows have to make money now Otherwise, they're not going to be on the air. Cable news has to make money in order to exist. And in order to make money, you have to cater to a particular audience. So do you think Fox News has a particular audience? You think MSNBC has a particular audience? You think CNN has a particular audience? Because if they don't have a particular audience, they're not going to survive, but it means they have to tailor their stories towards that audience because they no longer have Jack Benny to make them money. So information flow has changed. You're only going to get part of the story on social media because it's whatever your algorithm is saying makes you the most outraged. Those are the stories that are fed your way. You're only going to get part of the story in any news channel because they're catering to a particular audience because they have to make the money. Otherwise, they won't exist. And when it comes to cancel culture, we now reached a point where if anyone has done anything that is now deemed unacceptable to a significant numbers of the audience, and sometimes they've done something that's unacceptable to us. But when they've done something acceptable, we want to cancel them, which means we no longer allow them to become a culture maker so that they cannot add to the information flow. What's happening right now in our country is the information is being controlled. 
in ways that's further polarizing the people who are receiving it. Because you can listen to one event on two different stations and the same news reporter or the same event is being covered in two totally different ways. How many know that? Two different stories, but it's the exact same event because information flow has changed. So we have cultural insecurity, we have information flow. Another thing that's increased polarization is ideology politics. We now come to the point where when people are running for office, almost the only way they have a chance is by appealing to the what used to be called the wing of the party because the wing of the party has now become the base of the party. And if I'm going to run for election, I've got to go as far to the right as I can tolerate. I've got to go as far to the left as I can tolerate so I can get the largest number of votes from my party. Then in the general election, I'll try to swing closer towards the middle, though at some point we've started to give up on that. And now it's just about getting that 51%. Because if you get 51%, you get to be president or you get to be a congressman or you get to be a senator or you get to be something else. So there's no longer an appeal to the country. There's only an appeal to the base. And that's who we're representing. And that means that within politics, it started to become a zero-sum game. It used to be the best political strategy was compromise. It used to be compromise was the thing people were praised for in politics. If you could compromise, that meant you were a leader because a leader always works towards a win-win situation. That defines good leadership. You take it all the people you represent and you try to find the solution that's the best win-win possible for everyone involved. You have compromised and you are good. Now we won't vote for someone if they have the word compromise attached to their name. And here's the scenario. Here's how crazy it gets. Let's say that you have party A and they want to give everyone a $1 reduction in taxes. Let's just, ooh, that's profound. A $1 reduction in taxes. Let's say you have party B, they want to give everyone a $2 reduction in taxes. Well, if everyone gets a $1 reduction in taxes, what happens? Party A has won, and party B got half of what they wanted. But we have gotten to the point now that party B would vote against a $1 just because it's not a $2. Because if I get half of what I want, what it means is I've still lost because the other side won. And someone else's victory is automatically treated as our defeat, regardless of the outcome for the American people. Does that make sense? Just the fact that it was someone else's victory meant it was my defeat. And it's become a zero-sum game. At the same time, we've also had identity formation, which is to say that it used to be identity politics simply referred to a particular group of people who are assumed to vote a certain way based on their cultural identity. But more and more increasingly, everyone in the country is taking on identity politics as their politics. I can tell you that I'm conservative, and that tells you everything you need to know about me. I tell you that I'm liberal, and that tells you everything you need to know about me. And I'm going to vote for this group or for that group based on how I identify regardless of the quality of the candidate that comes forward. Because again, if the other side wins, it means I've lost. And it's not about fighting for the common good or the compromise or the win-win. It's about making sure my side wins. And what ultimately happens is a situation called packaged ethics where both sides, and let's just talk about this. How many know there's more than two sides in our country? But we still have a tendency to think either or. 
Both sides will package different ethical things together so that if you vote for this, you also have to vote for this, 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 and this. How you feel about abortion is gonna be about how you feel about immigration, is gonna be about how you feel about capital punishment, is gonna be about how you feel about national defense, is gonna be about how you feel about taxing the wealthy, is gonna be about how you feel about welfare, blah, 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 right? So if I answer one question for you, like you say to me, tell me how you feel about abortion. However I answer that question is now telling you everything you think you need to know about me. Because of packaged ethics, how I've answered one thing has told you how you can assume I'm gonna answer everything. Does that make sense? And how many of you know that sometimes those things that get packaged together don't actually make sense next to each other? But you feel like you have to find a way to justify it because if I don't, I no longer belong to this tribe and that we allow our ethical thinking to be done as if it's a package system, rather than taking each issue on its own merits. Now, here's where it gets really, really bad. It's not really, really bad yet. You ready for it getting really, really bad? Here's when we reach the worst point, is when it reaches into the level of idolatry. Because here's the thing, as Christians, our identity doesn't come from politics, our identity comes from Christ. But when our ethical system, when our way of navigating the good and the bad of the world gets entirely taken over by one party or one system, and when how I understand who I am is no longer who I am in Christ, it's who I am within America, I'm becoming very dangerously close to becoming an idolater. Because idolatry just means what? The place that God has, I've put something else there. And the place that God has, I've put something else there. If God is not the source of my ethics, but a party is, that party is taking the place of God. If Christ is not the source of my identity, but a party or a label is, that has now taken the place of God. And here's the thing that's important to note. Bad things don't become idols. Good things become idols. We don't have a tendency to make idols out of bad things. We just see idols as bad. But how do you know the things that we have a tendency to make into idols are the things that actually are good for some reason? Can you make your family into an idol? Yeah, because it's good. The closer it is to being perfect, the more likely it is to take the place of God for you because you see it as such a good. Can our country become an idol? Yeah, because our country is good. Being a patriot is good, meaning it's at risk of becoming an idol. Whatever is good is always at risk of becoming an idol. John Calvin said it this way, and I put this quote up here and I love this quote, and it's simply this. The human mind is a factory for making idols. The human mind is a factory for making idols. It's just the way our minds are. We always have a tendency to take good things and try to turn them into God things. Because a God thing is something I'm under. A good thing is something I can still control. So the thing I have a tendency to put in part of place of God is what I think I still have control over. So now, when our country reaches this point that we have now become fully subsumed by our politics, we've become so polarized, we see our side as good, we see the other side as bad, what happens in every single election, we treat it as if we're fighting for the soul of our nation. And this is the other line I'm going to give you. And I don't know who this is credited from. It's quoted a lot of places, but it's this. And the absence of religion, politics becomes religion. 
In the absence of religion, politics becomes religion. Because when you reach the point that you no longer have a system to tell you what's good and what's bad, and you no longer have a way of understanding good and bad against the backdrop of the cosmic, you make good and bad against the backdrop of the local. And people who are without a religion in our country are people for whom their politics has become their religion now treat everything that happens politically as if it's a fight between good and evil every single day and every election is for the soul of our country. And if so-and-so wins this next election, I'm moving to Canada. And if so-and-so doesn't win, God has saved our country. And we put it in these apocalyptic terms. Because religion is starting to move out of the way of politics as that which tells us who we are and where we're headed and what we should be. Now, I'm gonna simplify this even further. I'm gonna give you one more. And this is not coming from me. This is coming from a a couple of guys I'm gonna quote in a second. But they put it this way, and I thought they summarized it really well. They said, in part, all of these are recent, but there's something that goes deeper and it's this. It's human inclination itself. We have a tendency because we were created in the image of God to always be concerned about justice. How many know a lot of our political debates all come down to the idea of what's just, of what's right, of what's fair, that people who are on different sides of the abortion issue, one will say clearly this is the answer because of justice. The unborn have a right to live. Another side, well, clearly this is the answer because of justice. People should have the right to do with their bodies what they want. Everyone's arguing from justice, but they're arguing from two different ends. And it's not just that we're always for justice. That's human, that's that's a God thing that we have minds and hearts that bend towards justice. We know when someone's being treated unfairly. I've told you before that we now have a foster child. He's two. He's a two-year-old who has a sense of justice. And you know why? He complains every time he thinks my son gets something that he didn't get. That's not fair. That's not right. And yet, if we give him something that our son didn't get, this two-year-old has actually started handing something to our son. It's not just what he wants. He wants to make sure everyone else has the same thing. There's a sense of justice there. We all have this desire for justice, and that's a good thing. But human inclination isn't just about justice. It's also about justification. And part of the other problem is this. As human beings, we're always trying to justify ourselves. Because one of the hardest things to do in the world is to recognize that you've been wrong. Have you ever been in an argument with someone? And halfway through the argument, yeah, every married person just raised their hand. No, let me finish the sentence. You've been in an argument with someone and halfway through the argument, you realized you were in the wrong. I mean, that's a horrible feeling because you can do one of two things in that moment. Either you can turn around and say, you know what? I get it now. I see your position. I, I was wrong. Or that's the mature thing. Or you can immediately try to slowly make the argument about something else where you are right so that you don't have to admit you were wrong about the other thing, right? Because it's so hard to say I was wrong. And here's where a lot of people are in their lives. We can either admit we were wrong and redeem our future, or we can double down on being wrong and justify our past. We can either live our lives redeeming our future, or we live our lives justifying our past. And here's the thing, for a lot of Americans, we get stuck in self-justification. We're for justice. We might not have the way to get there exactly right, but we're sure gonna make sure that we don't give up on that. 
and we double down on where we might've been wrong. So how many say this starts to sound like our country? Yeah, it starts to sound like where we are. Uh, Here's another simple way to put it. And I'm gonna connect this now because we're gonna move to our second thing, the Apostle Paul. Uh, We have the presence of a crisis. Anytime you have a crisis, a crisis always leads to conflict. And the reason it leads to conflict is we can't ever agree on how to get out of the crisis. Again, I'll go back to being married. You find out that you have lost your direction into where you're going. And one person says, let's just keep going this way and see what happens. And the other person says, let's stop and ask for directions. And automatically you have a conflict. The crisis is your loss. The conflict is you have two different ways of getting out of it. We do this all the time in our country. Whenever there's a crisis, there will always be conflict because more than one person thinks they know the right thing to do. When there's crisis and there's conflict, what it leads to is a spread of confusion. Have you ever heard two people disagree, say in a political argument, and you thought they both sounded right? Have you ever heard two people disagree in a political argument and you thought you weren't gonna vote for either one of those people? right? I mean, there's a confusion. I don't know what to do. I don't know if this person's right. I don't know if that person's right. So what happens in a crisis that leads to conflict, that leads to confusion, is eventually we start looking for easy ways of clarity. Easy ways of clarity. So I don't know who's right or who's wrong, but I'm going to choose a tribe, and I'm going to try and look for little litmus tests that tell me you belong to my tribe. So in, say, a pandemic, let's give an example here. We have COVID-19, The rise of conflict is our government response. The spread of confusion happens in our church response. Churches don't know, should they shut down if the government says they should shut down? Should they not shut down because the government shouldn't tell them what to do if they're letting the Walmart stay open? Should we all take vaccines? Should we not take vaccines? Should we wear masks? Are we losing our freedom if we don't wear masks? And what happens in that confusion is we start taking how someone answers that question as telling me what tribe they belong to so I know whether I'm safe with them or I'm not safe with them. So I walk into a church and I see everyone wearing a mask and I might turn right around and walk out of that church because this church clearly isn't for me. Or I walk into a church and I see everyone not wearing a mask and I turn around and I walk out of that church because that church clearly isn't for me and none of us care about whether or not there was a cross on the wall. Because for us, the mask was enough detail to tell us whether these Christians belong to us or not. We're looking for easy points of clarity because of our cultural confusion. And can I highlight something? This was also true for the church in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there was for the entire time the New Testament was written a crisis. That crisis was Jewish identity under Roman oppression. From the time of the Romans on, there was a fear that Jews were going to give up what it meant to be Jewish, meaning they were gonna give up what God had called them to be in the world because so many Jews had compromised in so many ways. That was the crisis. The conflict was we couldn't figure out what the right way of being Jewish was. Is it someone who protects the temple? Is it someone who protects the law? Is it someone who fights back violently? Is it someone who just goes along with the Roman government? What's the right answer to protecting Judaism? So the church comes on the scene and the church is made up of Jews who are becoming Christians, but they're still Jewish. They're still going to synagogue. They're still going to temple. But then Gentiles join the church. And right away, Christians are saying, 
that what matters is your relationship to Christ, not whether or not you were circumcised, not whether or not you have one of the markers of Jewish identity. And right away, the church is thrown into conflict because how do we know? Our crisis, the crisis we were born out of is trying to maintain our Jewishness in a Gentile world. And suddenly, we're becoming Gentile. And should we be circumcised or should we not be circumcised? Should we eat pork or should we not eat pork? Should we celebrate our holy days or should we not celebrate our holy days? How many know those come up again and again in the New Testament? Because that was the crisis, that was the conflict, that was the confusion. And the Apostle Paul is trying to navigate the church through that. So when I asked the question at the beginning, if we dropped the Apostle Paul off in the 21st century in the U.S., how would he deal with questions of vaccines, with questions of masks, with questions of the pandemic, with questions of polarization? Here's the thing, we can just look at what he did in the first century. Because he was already dealing with the crisis. He was already dealing with conflict. He was already dealing with confusion. How did he answer those questions? Are you still with me? Again, there won't be a quiz on this at the end, but maybe there will be one in heaven. So I'm going to get right now into five points of the Apostle Paul that I'm going to look at briefly. Uh, The first, I'm going to look at Christ and identity for Paul. For him, identity did not come out of politics. It didn't come out about relationship to Rome, relationship to law, relationship to the temple, relationship to anything Jews were fighting over. It comes out of relationship to Christ first. Then I want to talk about what he says about character and unity. What kind of character should we have in the midst of a conflict? Then what did he talk about with community and leadership, which is how should the church be led? What should the church be led to? And then finally, citizenship and rights. How do we respond to the powers outside the church? And what rights do we have? What rights do we not have? What can we insist on? And here's how Paul's going to help us navigate all the way to the 21st century. So I'm not going to give you these. I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to highlight them. I'm going to make this PowerPoint available. The pastor already has it. If you want to go over it, so I'm putting the text in there. But Paul, in his letter to the Philippians makes it very clear that the pattern of Jesus becomes the pattern of the way we live our lives. And here's what Paul does. He highlights this quite beautifully, and I'm just gonna put this whole thing up here. He said that if you look at the attitude of Jesus in Philippians chapter two, he was someone who did not insist on his own rights. He said, though he was the nature of God, he did not consider his equality with God as something he could exploit. But being found in the form of a servant, in human likeness, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has raised him up, given him a name that is above every other name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's three things that happens here. Number one, Jesus did not insist on his rights. He had the rights of God, but he actually came to us as a human being. He did not exploit the rights that he had. Number two, he was obedient to God all the way to the point of death. He was willing to go to the cross out of obedience to God. And because he was humble, because he was obedient, God raised him up. Paul later in the same chapter talks about two young men under his ministry, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and he says the same thing about them. Timothy is a young man who doesn't look after his own interests, but he looks after the interest of Jesus. He doesn't exploit his rights. He talks about Epaphroditus as a young man who almost dies for the sake of the gospel. He was obedient to the point of death. Then Paul in chapter three applies this to his own life. 
And he says, though I was born a Hebrew of Hebrews on the eighth day circumcised, according to the law, I was a Pharisee. According to zeal, I persecuted the church. I count all those things as loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I don't insist on my rights. Number two, I'm obedient to the point of death. Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, so I might somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. Being a Christian means that we take on the identity of Christ, means that we take on the way of Christ. The way that Christ did not insist on his rights, that's how we live in the world. We don't try to make sure we get our way when it's owed to us, but we're willing to give up for the good of others. We're obedient to God, even if it cost us our life. Why? Because we have the hope that as God raised up Jesus, God will raise us up. The promise of God is simply better than whatever promise our rights can ever give us. The promise of God is better. That's the identity. And if we understand that as our identity in Christ, suddenly taking on the identity of a conservative or a liberal or a progressive or anything else really seems small in comparison because there's nothing our country can promise us that's greater than what we already have in Christ Jesus. Paul will stress this even further in some other passages. In Romans 8 or 6, he talks about how in baptism we identify with Christ. That just as Christ was buried, so we go under the water. Just as Christ was raised to new life, so we come out of the water. We go under the water one person, we come out of the water another person. I've identified with Christ. In fact, sometimes as a pastor, I would say this to people when I would teach them about baptism. I'm like, when you're going under the water... You're actually identifying with Jesus, meaning some of the things that don't belong to Christ, you're giving up now. You want to fight for your rights? Can't do that anymore. You just gave that up in the water baptism. That stuff went away. You come out of the water now, that's no longer your option. Going into baptism limits your options in one direction, but increases your options in the other direction. My son, seven-year-old, was just baptized on Easter. Seven years old, I had the honor of baptizing him. After he got baptized, we went back up to change into our dry clothes. My little boy looks at me and he says, dad, hurry up. And I say to him, son, don't be so impatient. He goes, why? I said, cause you just got baptized and you left that impatience in the water. And my son goes, oh, okay. <laughs> and then he waits for me to get done. Baptism is identification with Christ. It actually changes the way we make choices about our lives because now it's Christ's choices. In the same way, Paul tells us in Romans 12, I want you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Understand, in the ancient world, Christianity was weird for two big reasons. The first reason was we didn't have an idol. You go into any Christian church or place of worship, they don't have an image of their God. That was true of only Christians and Jews. Everyone else had an image. So you would walk in, you didn't see the image, and you're like, well, what's going on here? Who do you guys worship? Because every other place you can see. But the thing that was most unique about Christianity is we also didn't offer sacrifices by animal. You go to any temple, including the temple in Jerusalem, and there is a place to kill the goat, there's a place to kill the lamb, there's a place to kill the bird. 
You go into Christianity and there's no altar for killing because we see Christ as the sacrifice. We're united to his sacrifice. So what does Paul say? Here's how you're to live your lives as Christians. You offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And you allow your minds to be transformed and no longer conform to the pattern of this world. What does that mean? One thing that means is the options the world gives us are not the options we use to make decisions. Because here's the thing. Options created by worldly people will not be useful in discerning the will of God. Options created by worldly people will not be useful in discerning the will of God. For people who are godless, those options were not their options for following God. They're not gonna be our options for following God. And sometimes as Christians, we're making decisions based on words that aren't even found in the Bible because we're allowing the world to tell us what the options are rather than allowing scripture to tell us what the options are. Don't ever look to the world to give you the options to discern God's will. That's what Paul says here in Romans 12. Uh, When he talks about Christ and identity markers, he brings this up repeatedly in the, in the Bible. In fact, I just gave you two long passages where he talks about it. Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians, uh, Romans 14 here and 1 Corinthians chapter eight. And both of these, the big argument is this, what do we do with eating food that's been sacrificed to idols? Because in the ancient world, whenever you bought meat, almost all the meat came from a pagan temple because that's where the meat would come from. If you're going to buy meat and not a living animal, it had been sacrificed. It was hard to find non-sacrificed meat because that's where the animals were killed in a pagan temple. So a lot of Christians were like, well, I can't eat meat then because I can't eat meat that was sacrificed to a god. Other Christians were like, well, we know those gods don't exist. Why should their beliefs change the fact that I want a steak? This was a crisis in the church. It was an identity question. Do I sacrifice my faith by having a burger? because that burger was given to Apollo first? Or is it okay to have a burger because I don't believe in Apollo? And here's what Paul writes in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. He says, listen, the gods don't exist. It's okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols because we know there's no actual thing attached to them. But there are Christians in the community who don't feel that comfortable with it. They are fresh out of idolatry meaning for them, it did matter that it was sacrificed to Apollo because they're not that far removed from Apollo yet. And when you eat Apollo meat in front of them or Isis meat or Zeus meat or whatever you want to call it, they see that as honoring those gods and you are actually damaging their own faith. So what does Paul tell us? He tells us, don't let litmus tests that we create determine someone else's relationship with God or you Don't treat anyone with contempt or judgment based on how they navigate identity markers. Their issue might've been meat, our issue might've been masks. But as Christians, you are not allowed to treat someone with contempt or with judgment because they're navigating a cultural identity marker different than you are. Why aren't you allowed to do that? Because you were baptized and you gave that up in the water. That's not how we treat each other. If someone is struggling with the identity marker that we have the freedom to exercise, Paul says, for their sake, give up your rights. 
If you have someone who is really bothered by this, in fact, I'll give you an example for this. I'm gonna just confess to you right now. I don't have a problem with movies. Can I say that right now? I actually go to movies. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't go to all movies. There's some movies I do have a problem with, but I pastored in Los Angeles. My congregation was part of the entertainment industry. I had actors and actresses and directors and stunt people and others in my church. I was their pastor. Sometimes I went to work with them, right? So for me, I was navigating a community of people that the entertainment industry was their job and I was trying to help them see how to be a Christian within it. So movies as a whole, I'm not offended by because I pastor the people who made those. But I once pastored a church where there were people in the community who actually were offended by movies because when they were not believers, movies was a way that they sinned against God because of the movies they went to. And the whole time I was their pastor, I never once went to a movie. Because though I felt the freedom to do so, I was never gonna do something that would damage their own faith. Does that make sense? You give up your rights for the good of another believer when you know that this would be damaging to them. This is how we exercise these identity markers, but we don't judge someone and we don't hold someone in contempt. Now, when it comes to character and unity, and I'm just gonna highlight this very quickly, I think it's interesting if we look at the character formation, the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, or we look at what Paul writes about in Ephesians 4, many times when he gives us a list of virtues like spiritual fruit, how many of them are related to community? He tells us to be what? He tells us to show love, to have peace, forbearance. That means you put up with each other, kindness, gentleness. So much of the fruit of the spirit can only be exercised in community. You know, it's easy to be patient if I'm alone. It's harder to be patient when I have to wait on someone. But that's what patience is. I once had someone say to me, I have patience, but not a lot of it. And I had to be hold my tongue and to say, that doesn't make any sense because patience by definition means you have a lot of it. Just say you're impatient, right? Patience, kindness, forbearance, gentleness. These only make sense in community. And so much of the character the Bible talks about, what it means to look like Christ, only shows up in community with other people. In other words, and here's what I want to highlight, our character was made for community. Our character was made for community. It's great that you may not smoke, right? It's great that you may not drink. It's great that you may not do all of these things that you can do alone. But if you want to show what someone is in Christ Jesus, show me how they are in a community of people. Because the fruit of the Spirit shows up in community. Does that make sense? Community is where we show our character because our character was made for community because Christians were made for community. That's why if we talk about community and leadership, so much of what Paul writes about leadership is simply this. The job of a Christian leader is to bring a community to unity. The job of a Christian leader is to bring a community unity. In Ephesians 4, he says, God gave us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to do three things. One, to equip us for works of service, meaning the job of a leader is to help the community learn how to minister. The job of the leader is not to just minister to the community, it's to turn the community into ministers. You should be equipped for works of service. Secondly, though, you should be matured in Christ Jesus. 
This is what Paul also says in Ephesians chapter four. He says what? That we are called to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. But then this third thing is huge. We're also called to be unified. I say this to my students at North Central who are studying to be pastors. You wanna judge the success of your ministry? I'm gonna give you three metrics and here they are. How is your church ministering? How is your church unified? How is your church maturing? That's how I wanna judge your success as a pastor. Are the people that you're leading more mature than they were when you got there? Are they more unified than they were when you got there? Are they doing more for others than they were when you got there? That's why God gives us leaders in the church. Paul says the same thing here to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 and how he preaches. How should you preach, Timothy? You should preach to correct. You should preach to rebuke. You should preach to encourage. And then he says this, there will always be people in the church who are more attracted to myths that the culture gives them than they are to what the word of truth says. There will always be people in the church, and I'm just going to put it in my own terms, who are more interested in the conspiracy theories they've read on Facebook than they are interested in what Paul means by Romans chapter 12. They're always going to be more interested in all of these sayings that are going on out there than they are interested in what God actually has for them. And I can tell you, I could build a church as a conspiracy pastor. Sometimes I thought of that. I could just preach every sermon on a different conspiracy, and I would attract a certain crowd of people. But from that, I would never be able to turn them into people who look like Jesus. Because that wouldn't do it. It would only be the word of God. So in the community we belong in, we're called to be unified. We're called to be mature. We're called to serve. That's how we measure our success. In fact, uh, can I give you one terrible joke before we're almost done? Can I give you one terrible joke before we, because I'm going to give you one more thing. I'm going to give you one more terrible joke because it comes here from Ephesians 4. This is a terrible, terrible joke. And I want to read what it says here. Instead, speaking the truth in love, verse 15, we will grow up to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Here's the worst joke I know. Imagine a kid who was born and he was just a head. And what I mean is that was it, just a head. No body, he just had a head, but he was still able to live, move, and everything else. Or not move, but live, you know what I mean. One day when he turns 21, his dad takes him to a bar to give him his first drink. And, and because of who we are, we're just gonna say it was root beer, to give him his first drink of root beer. He goes to the bar, he downs an entire root beer, and suddenly a right arm pops out. And the dad is like, oh my goodness, we've never tried this before. Quick, give him another root beer. He takes another root beer and a left arm pops out. And the dad says, quick, quick, bring me another. He takes another root beer and a right leg pops out. And the dad says, quick, quick, take another. He takes another root beer and he dies of root beer poisoning. And as the ambulance comes, they put him in the gurney and they're taking him away. The bartender sits in the back and shakes his head and said, man, kid should have stopped when he was ahead. Okay, so that's the worst joke I know. Thank you for laughing. I appreciate the courtesy. Here's my example, here's why I told it to you. The image that Paul gives us is this. It's the image of the church as a fully developed head attached to an underdeveloped body. The head is Christ, the body is the church, the head is fully grown, the body is not. And what we are constantly doing as a community, as a body of Christ, is we are growing into the head, which is Jesus. So the day will come that the body of the church matches the head of the church.
Now, you know right now, but have you ever seen someone had a huge head and a small body? And you're like, if you saw them in a robe, you would assume something looked very different underneath that robe. And then like they go swimming and you're like, oh my goodness, what happened to you, right? Huge head, small body, that's what the church looks like. The head is fully developed, fully mature, it's Christ. The body is us. And what God is wanting is he's wanting that body to match that head. And that's what we're always walking towards. But when we get taken over by politics, we actually become skinnier and less mature. So last thing Paul says here, and then we're gonna close. Paul talks about, finally, citizenship and rights in quite a few passages. Uh, Philippians 3, he tells us that our citizenship is in heaven because that's where our hope comes from. What I think is interesting, in the book of Acts, he is a Roman citizen. He has no problem appealing to his citizenship when it helps the church. He also, at places in Acts, shuts up about his citizenship when it hurts the church. There are times he doesn't insist on being a citizen because he even gets a beating without saying this is illegal to do because to reveal he was a Roman citizen at that moment would have actually hurt his witness in the context of the story. But other times, when it helps, he has no problem depending on his citizenship. Paul uses his earthly citizenship. But Paul identifies with his heavenly citizenship. He uses the citizenship he has here for the sake of the gospel, but he identifies with the citizenship he has there. That's how he exercises his rights. And in fact, in Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2, Ephesians 6, 10, Paul lets us know that the government is God's servant for the sake of order and for the sake of justice. There's actually two principles that are given here for the government, and it's this. The government is acting as God's servant whenever it, one, applies justice, and two, applies it fairly. If the government is working for the common good and the government is applying justice, it's doing it fairly, the government is doing what God wants. But here's the kicker, even if the government is wrong, because how many of you know our government is always as fallible as the rest of us? And at times it can be wrong. But according to Paul, and I think this is important, agreement with the government decision isn't a requirement for obedience. We don't have to agree with the government to obey the government. All we have to ask is, are they making this in good faith for the common good? And are they applying this fairly? If they're doing that, they're meeting the conditions of Romans 13. On the other hand, whenever the government gives us a command that would force us to disobey God, then we have to disobey the government instead. And sometimes as Christians and as churches, I fear this, we have rushed to tell the government no when we did not have sufficient biblical reason for saying no. Because the stance of the New Testament is this, you tell the government yes for as long as you can until you can't say yes anymore. And here's the thing, I'm just gonna throw this out here. The more often we try to work with the government, the more power our no has when we can't. The more often we say no just because, the less power that no actually has. When the government knows we're willing to do whatever we can to try and make it work, that's what gives our no power. When we finally say you've crossed a line and we just can't go with you. But if the church is always rushing to say no, they're taking away power from what they're doing. Is the government doing this in the interest of the common good? They have reason to believe that. They might be wrong, but they have reason and they're actually applying it fairly. 
Because just because they're doing it for the common good doesn't mean they're not putting one group above another. And if they are, then what we call out is that. Even when it's not our group, we still call it out. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that we do what? We pray for those who are in charge. Pray for those in authority. Why? So that we can live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. And then finally, he reminds us that every conflict we face has to be seen through a spiritual lens, not a cultural lens. If you're a Republican and you're also a Christian, what that automatically means is your enemy cannot be Joe Biden. Because as a Christian, you see things in a spiritual way, not just in a cultural way. Pray for Joe Biden. Ask God to touch Joe Biden's heart. Ask God to touch the heart of Donald Trump if you're a Democrat, because Donald Trump was still the authority. Ask God to touch Barack Obama. Ask God to touch whoever is coming next. Pray for those in charge and recognize they are not your enemy. They're actually the goal. The enemy is the enemy. And we fight things spiritually with prayer, with integrity, with morality, with love. We don't act like the world because when we act like the world, the world knows there's nothing different about us. When we act like the church, that's what confuses the world. Rick Warren, I love Rick Warren, Saddleback Church. Uh, Rick Warren's very open about where he stands on homosexuality. Rick Warren also has done more to fight AIDS than anybody else almost in the world that has really confused people. But that's because Rick Warren is a Christian. He doesn't act like the world. He acts like the church. And when the church acts like the church, people don't even know how to attack us because they hate this thing that we disagree with, but they absolutely love what we're doing. That's the way the church is called to be. Uh, so finally, how do we become a non-polarized people? I'm gonna give you four quick things and then I'm going to close out here. Uh, uh, here's what we have to do. We have to teach for identity. We have to be taught for identity. This church is where you get your identity. It's here that you learn about Christ. It's here that you learn God's word. It's not outside the church. You're not looking for a church that's filled with people that you identify with politically. You're looking for a church that's filled with people who are learning to identify with Christ along with you. That's what you're actually looking for. That's what the church is called to do. As a community, our identity is coming from our biblical literacy. We understand what God's word is, so we understand God's work, so we understand God's will. It's coming from our theological grounding. Who Christ is is telling me everything about myself. It comes from the fact that we're getting our character formed here. And if our character is formed here, it's being formed for community. So the church is the place where we're taught for identity. The church is the place where we're modeled for transformation. This is where we should see what godly interactions look like. I'll be honest with you, as I'm saying this now as a foster parent, I have, I have a foster child who comes to our house and everything is calm and he goes to someone else's house and everything is drama. And he likes one place more than the other, but he loves the people in the other place because they're his family. And it's hard. What we've got to do is be a place where people understand what a reconciled, peaceful, and loving community looks like. We have to be a place defined by godly interactions. We have to be a place that shows that we are fighting a spiritual war, not just a cultural war. The church is not a warrior on a cultural battlefield. The church is a warrior on a spiritual battlefield. 
And every single person outside the church, they're not our enemies, they're the victims of sin. And we have to fight on their behalf. I have political opinions. There's nothing wrong with having opinions. Let me say this, there's nothing wrong with having disagreements. I have opinions, I have disagreements. There's some things I feel very strongly about politically. There's some people I may never vote for. But those people are people I'm fighting for, even though I disagree with them. I'm fighting for their good as a Christian. That means how we dialogue about politics within the church. And let me throw this, not just in the church as a building, in the church as the church. How many know a lot of Christians have given up their witness on social media? In fact, I've told some pastors, it's never been easier in some ways to be a pastor because all I have to do is look at the social media accounts of members of my congregation and I automatically know what I should be preaching about next week. Because I see how they're dialoguing with other people, how they're abandoning their witness because they're being driven by outrage, not by the Holy Spirit. How we dialogue about politics has to be modeled for transformation. That also means that all of our character formation has to be for community. I love what James says, and this is one of my favorite verses, and I'm gonna quote it multiple times, James 1.19. He says what? Be slow to speak, be slow to anger, and be quick to listen. I will tell you right now, as a dad, as a pastor, as a professor, that's what I wanna be the three principles for how we engage in social media. Be slow to speak, be slow to anger, be quick to listen. And if we understand that in terms of discipleship, we are being discipled to be a part of a community. That means as people of faith, we are all about the truth, not just about our social networks and what they think. As people of hope, we're all about patience. You know why I can be patient? Because I know a good thing is coming. You know why I'm impatient? When I think it's never gonna end. I'm impatient when my wife's getting ready for something and she's not ready yet because I start to think, oh my goodness, we're gonna be late. We're not gonna make it in time. This is never gonna be over. When I realize it's still gonna be okay, I learn to be patient. If we're people who are genuinely governed by Christian hope, we are people who can know to be patient. And finally, if we're people of love, we can be people of kindness. Slow to anger, slow to speak, but always quick to listen. Last thing for us, we need to be led for witness. And here's what I would argue in multiple places. And in fact, I've said this in other churches that I think the church has to recognize that though we believe in a supernatural grace that comes from the Holy Spirit through Jesus, and we need to see that, we need to preach that. We also have to recognize there is a common grace that God has for the entire world. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5? He gives his reign to the just and the unjust alike. In agrarian society, reign is always a gift from God. God gives his reign to the just and the unjust alike. And Jesus says, in that way, you should be willing to love those who are your enemies. And so be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What does that mean? We work for the common good, even of the people who hate us. We work for the common good, even of the people who hate us, because that's what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 5. That also means the common grace, common good. Jeremiah tells us, pray, pray for the city that you're in. 
Pray for the good of that city. Pray for the security of that city because when that city succeeds, you will succeed. Work for common grace, work for common good. Also look for common ground. Paul says what in 1 Corinthians 9, 22? I've become all things to all people so I might win some. What does he mean by that? I'm always looking for the things I share with someone so I can build off that. Never allow someone being a different tribe than you to make you think they don't have the same needs you have. Don't let a difference in tribe mean for you an absence of need. And here's what makes the church special. If we live for the common grace that God wants to do good to all, we work for the common good, God wants us to work even on behalf of those who hate us. And we're always looking for the common ground. What makes us different? On top of all of that, we put an uncommon godliness. We put an uncommon godliness and people realize there's something different about us that not everyone else has. That's how we bear witness in the world, through common grace, common good, common ground. But on top of all of that, it's the godliness that only comes from the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Everyone still with me? Okay, you guys have stayed with me. Again, I told you this would be a week of lectures. You guys have stayed with me through all of this. Here is my conclusion. Uh, there's a book I recently read, because I always think to myself, this is what I'm saying. How would someone else say this? And I found out, a, uh, and I don't want to say a friend of mine, a guy that I know, uh, recently wrote a book. He teaches at Bethlehem Baptist Seminary, uh, a guy that, that I disagree with in some parts theologically, but I still think is a good guy. He wrote a book on this, How Do I Love Christians Who Disagree With Me Politically? And here's what he said, and I just thought I would give it to you, just the kind of the quick points. He said, what you got to do is you got to adjust your expectations. The church is not supposed to be the same political tribe. The church is the same community of Christ made up of every tribe. What does the Bible say in Revelation 7, 9? I looked and around the throne of God, I saw people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. The church is every tribe. It's not supposed to be one tribe. So adjust your expectations. I'm not walking into a building looking for people who agree with me politically. I'm walking to a building looking for people who want to be identified with Christ. I'm not looking for masks. I'm looking for a cross. That's what I'm looking for when I walk into the room. That's what I want to see. Adjust your expectations. Recognize what a church is. Recognize what's absolutely necessary for the church, but what also belongs to Christian freedom. And don't confuse the two. There are some things that have to be true for the church to be the church, and there are some things that don't need to be true for the church to be the church, and that's where Christian freedom is found. Understand that some issues might require a straight-line judgment. Is murder wrong? That's a straight-line judgment, right? Should we tax the rich more than the poor percentage-wise? Uh, okay, suddenly, you know, you say, well, there's this, there's this. There. That's a jagged-line judgment meaning you have to hit a lot of points to get there. Straight line, I can go straight from Scripture to the judgment. Jagged line, there's all these other things I got to consider before I can make that judgment. There's a difference between a straight line judgment and a jagged line judgment. And understand Christians who have a differently calibrated conscience on jagged line judgment should not be judged by us. Finally, remember what is most important. 
He also gives advice to pastors, which is even more than this. And you can look at this on your own. I'm not gonna read this whole thing to you, but the long and the short of it is this. Here's his advice to pastors. Always make sure you're putting scripture above everything else. And the church knows what it is to be a church. And it's not about a political judgment. So if you're interested, last verse, live such good lives among the pagans that though may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us.